You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. This space is the sixth and final in our series on protecting women's participation in peacebuilding, which we're holding in advance of International Women's Day. We're also holding them in advance of the deadline for nominating Extraordinary Women Peacebuilders for our Women Building Peace Award. To submit a nomination, you'll need to register by March 8th, tomorrow, and you can find details about that process on our website. Our speakers today are Tonis Montes and Angelica Retberg. Tonis is a Senior Program Officer for Latin America at USIP. Angelica is a full professor at the Political Science Department at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, where she leads the research program on armed conflict and peacebuilding. She is also a co-director of the Gender, Justice, and Security Hub, hosted at the London School of Economics. In 2018, she served as a negotiator for the Colombian government in the peace talks with the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, the ELN. Her research has focused on several aspects of the political economy of armed conflict and peacebuilding, such as the relationship between legal resources, armed conflict, and criminality in several Colombian regions, the dynamics of transitional justice, and business behavior in contexts of armed conflict and peacebuilding. This series as a whole is meant to underscore the importance of protecting and facilitating women's meaningful inclusion and peacebuilding. And as we said, this session focuses on Colombia. Let me turn the discussion over now to Tonis to start us off. Tonis. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this space. Um, and I'm really looking forward to talking with Dr. Angelica Rutberg, someone who I have looked to for inspiration um, in the world of peacebuilding conflict um, for many years. So I think we would like to first begin our discussion, um, and I'll turn it over to Angelica, so that we can really frame the current context in Colombia um, that will allow us to really understand how women have historically and are currently playing roles in peacebuilding and security. Um, so really looking at this um, post-accord period, five years after the signing of the peace accord, and what that has meant um, for women's participation writ large. Um, Angelica, over to you. Hello. Uh, good morning, everybody. I'm very pleased to be part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Steve, and, and the United States Institute of Peace and Tonis for, for this invitation. Uh, I'm very pleased and honored to be, to be part of this discussion. So, yes, the question about the status of the peace process in Colombia, of course, is a relevant one five years after uh, its signature back in 2016. Um, this has been, as any post-agreement period in pretty much any country, uh, years where there have been significant advances and progress, but also, of course, there remain significant obstacles and problems facing peace consolidation in the country. So I'll just very briefly make an overview. Uh, may maybe the, the most important aspect of this agreement was that the, 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 the oldest guerrilla movement in Colombia, uh, which uh, was the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, or or FARC actually demobilized and handed over their weapons and entered into a very broad and very uh, uh, ambitious program of reincorporation whereby both foot, foot soldiers as well as advanced commanders would have um, different opportunities to um, 
either rejoin or or enter civilian life for the first time. So this is this is one very important result that I think we should stress. In addition to that, FARC has turned into a political party with uh, guaranteed seats in Congress for two consecutive legislative periods. Uh, this has been also a very important learning experience for the organization. It's very different uh, to be a guerrilla movement than becoming a party. This exposes them or confronts them with the need to uh, negotiate priorities with accommodating different kinds of leaderships, communicating with their electoral base. So far, their experience has not been easy at all. Uh, but this again is something that I would stress first, first and foremost as a, as a, as a sign of progress because it shows that in fact, uh, a movement that questioned political democracy as the proper way of resolving conflicts is now actually part of our imperfect and full of obstacles, but democracy uh, none the least. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there has been a very wide and ambitious transitional justice infrastructure put into place, which draws on earlier um, efforts. This is not the first time that we have transitional justice in Colombia, but this is uh, an important expansion and building on our previous experience. And in that context, we Colombians have learned a lot about the realities of and the brutalities that were committed by several sides during the Colombian conflict. We've learned about kidnappings. We've learned about uh, the ominous body count policy performed by the armed forces. We will learn more as, as, as time goes by about the recruitment of minors, uh, about sexual violence committed during conflict. So this transitional justice, in addition to uh, providing truth, is also uh, aimed at actually trying to provide the basis for the reparation of victims, for the addressing of the structural uh, imbalances that have led to these different forms of violence. Uh, and then finally, I would also maybe mention the, the importance of uh, the, the PEDETS, which are the Programas de Desarrollo con Enfoque Territorial, uh, or state-led programs to promote uh, peace and development in those regions considered most vulnerable to renewed forms of violence, uh, such as uh, regions that, that are especially poor, especially uh, uh, unequal, especially uh, close to illicit crops, and therefore very likely points of new vi renewed violence. Of course, despite these efforts that have been going on and which have been singled out at the level of the international community as as something to be to be admired and to be and to be commended, there are there are huge obstacles um, still facing the consolidation of peace in Colombia. One has to do with something that I've already mentioned, which is the the ongoing significance and expansion of uh, the illicit. Uh, illicit crops uh, or, 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 yeah, basically the growing of uh, coca leaves, uh, which feeds into an international criminal network that provides income uh, from peasants to big drug traffickers along the way to the streets of the consumer. This, of course, is not a Colombian problem alone. It is a problem that is, uh, th that is of s systemic uh, magnitude, but that has specific implications for violence in Colombia. In addition, and in line with that, uh, there has been uh, a growing number of social leaders uh, that have fallen in the violence, uh, both in turn of in, in, around illicit crops, but also related to other ongoing issues uh, 
in the territories which we'll go into later and then also finally maybe i would like to mention the fact that um there is a huge number of uh, of 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 venezuelan migrants entering the country some of these issues related to migration have fed into other problems that the country faces fortunately for colombia and for Latin America, I would say xenophobia is, 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 is lower than in other countries that have received Venezuelan migrants, but still the fact that there is this additional uh, strain on public resources, I guess, adds to the problem. And then finally, I forgot to mention, of course, there's a huge uh, missing link or, or still a huge debt still with uh, rural reform that was meant to benefit specific regions in the country, which has also really not made any progress. So so I, I, I would say just to to stress this initial discussion of current context, this is a this is a this is a picture of of some advance, some progress, but also very significant pending tasks uh, uh, surrounding peace in Colombia. Not very unlike the experience of other countries transitioning out of war. We know, as as one one UN official once said, that peace is not instant coffee. It, it doesn't happen um, from one day to the next. And, and, and this is something that we have not learned in Colombia. We expect very much, very fast, very, very, very soon. Uh, and this, of course, has hurt some of the popularity or some of the popular support for the peace agreement. Um, but as academics and as uh, policy uh, makers, I think it's important for us to remember that peace consolidation and peace building is a, is a matter of, 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 of many years, not, not, not only five years, which is the time that we've had in Colombia so far. Yeah, and you've highlighted a lot of interesting pieces. I mean, we we know about the innovative and structural um, parts of the agreement that are helping to advance some of those um, broader issues that were negotiated between the the FARC and the government, um, but also the challenges that still remain because we all know peace building is a process. This is uh, generational as well, and how many generations it will take for there to be um, this more consensus building uh, society. I think one thing that I or rather things that I want to highlight is um, indeed all of this context is that we're also entering an electoral period and what that means in terms of new administration, um, either supporting or otherwise uh, the implementation of elements of the peace agreement and what that electoral violence also does to social leaders. So I think that's also an important element in, in the backdrop of, of women's participation and civil society participation writ large. And then another thing that I, I wanted to highlight, which will kind of segue into our next um, discussion point, is what you mentioned, Angelica. You said post-agreement. And I think it's really important to make that clarification that we're not just in a post-conflict phase. I think that can be oftentimes misleading because we are still experiencing a lot of conflict and violence in very rural areas and in urban centers as well. Um, and so in, in this post-agreement phase, I think we should also make the distinction um, because there has been a, a discourse or narrative that what was signed five years ago was Colombia's peace process. But in fact, uh, the negotiation was only with one of the armed groups, with the FARC. And so I wanted to hear from you specifically on this point, just because you know you have been a negotiator, but with a different armed group. And so why do why we should make that distinction, um, and why it matters? Thanks, Jonas. Yes. Uh, so so the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, or ELN. Uh, was formed around the same time as FARC did back in the 60s. 
Uh, however, it has had it's historically had a different kind of agenda. It was also different in terms of the territorial expansion it experienced, and 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 it and today it clearly constitutes one of the main challenges for security overall and for the electoral process. I should add, uh, as well as uh, for communities in the regions where it operates, it is a group that has uh, an agenda that is very much linked to the nationalization of natural resources and very much linked to uh, an achievement of, of bigger, of higher levels of, of social equity, uh, social equality, I'm sorry. So, so it's, it's, it, it is not as militaristic an organization as FARC was, uh, which also makes it harder to, uh, for, for, from, from a military perspective to, 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 to go after the group. And this is something that really has, has haunted the Colombian state in terms of, you know, being able to actually identify where they are and how to combat the group. Um, the truth is that uh, that this group still is, is is operational in many regions of the country, especially along the border with uh, neighboring Venezuela. Uh, this adds to the problem of problems of migration that I mentioned earlier. In these fluid border areas, uh, there are very many. Uh, uh, Discussions over governance, over uh, over over who controls, over who uh, oversees, over who put, over who defines the rules of the game, and this is the kind of context in which organizations such as the LN and many of the organizations that are linked to illicit crops along the area along the border areas, of course, flourish. So this is this is of big of great concern for national authorities as well as for the international community. This of course is also an important matter in light of the upcoming elections, as you mentioned, Tonis. Um, of course, uh, despite the fact that the ELN has called for a ceasefire of its operations in its regions under in the in the regions under its control uh, for the duration of the electoral process, the fact that we're still having a group that needs to declare ceasefires and that meaning it, it, it'll stop bombing specific government posts or it will stop persecuting its, its alleged members uh, of, 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 of possible enemy groups, that, that, that in itself speaks to the fact, as you mentioned, that this process with FARC, uh, of which we celebrate five years, did not bring what we call complete peace and that therefore uh, there's still a very significant uh, pending agenda for actually providing an end to violence in Colombia. Absolutely. I mean, I think there has been always this recognition, even before the FARC agreement was signed, of this need to begin dialogue and negotiation with the ELN, recognizing that its structure was so different, its interests were vastly different from the points that were agreed to and negotiated um, with the FARC. And so how do you really, um, you know, this campaign, Paz Completa, our complete peace, how can you continue to advance that discussion? Um, in this uh, particular administration, we didn't see too many channels or openings for um, an ELN peace process. Um, you can surely speak to that. Um, but then we can start seeing what other opportunities with a new administration could we could we find to advance that. And I think um, coming into the theme of women's participation, that will be one really important discussion point for, for an ELN peace process. How do women from the onset actively participate um, at the negotiating table? Um, and so with, with that in mind, I do want to kind of jump into the FARC process because it is often hailed as a very innovative kind of reference point 
um, for the inclusion of women, um, although there are a lot of challenges and critiques to that inclusion and participation and the timing of it. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about um, those mechanisms that, that we, we've learned from the park, FARC process um, that a lot of other um, countries that are dealing with conflict are trying to kind of adjust and modify for their needs. Um, and so I wanted to highlight a couple of the of the those mechanisms on inclusion that we saw in in Havana, with the recognition and caveat, however, um, that this process started out very closed and very um, kind of oriented towards men. Um, and in some of the first pictures that we saw of the negotiating spaces between the government and the FARC, there were no women in the pictures that were coming out of Oslo before it transitioned to Havana. So even from the onset, uh, inclusion and participation of women's voices were, were very limited, um, but that evolved over time, fortunately. And I think that was due in large part because women in Colombia and the, and the feminist movement um, in particular have had a very rich history of participation. Um, so we have a lot of uh, kind of historical um, precedent on, on women's inclusion in, in peace processes. Um, and so one of those mechanisms that I um, highlight is the National Summit on Women, Peace and Security. And I think this one was really interesting um, because it was an attempt by civil society um, from, you know, 500 women from across the diversity of Colombia from different civil society organizations to really come together and review the points of the agreement that had already been negotiated um, and give concrete proposals as to how women's there could be a women's approach or a gender approach to those um, agenda points. And so the UN, um, UN Women supported this initiative and was able to really systematize the, the recommendations that were coming out of that space and bringing it to um, Havana, because Havana was quite, quite a closed process. It was very um, insular in a lot of ways at the beginning. And so how do you feed in those recommendations from a women's perspective um, into points that had already been negotiated. Um, so that summit was really seminal because it, it kind of um, broke some spaces for participation and allowed there to be more direct access to, to the, the negotiators. So I think that's also one of the more fascinating parts of, of the inclusion mechanisms that we saw in the FARC process. The other one that's also spoken about really um, it with a very interesting focus is the subcommittee on gender. Um, there were technical subcommittees in Havana that were working on different issues like DDR, ceasefires, security, agrarian reform, etc. But this was a very explicit where there were technical technical representatives um, from both parties and also international community supporting this to really create um, what we call kind of a transversal focus on, on inclusion so that all the elements of the agreement could have that distinction of how the conflict both um, disproportionately affected men and women, but also how the agreement could support men and women differently. And so that subcommittee um, really had the hard task of creating a more gender inclusive language to the agreement. Um, 
And so I think that that is an interesting reference point for a lot of other um, conflict, conflict parties and peace processes. Um, and a lot of what I'm referencing, I think it's important that this part is part of the peace process architecture. How do we think of a peace process from start to finish? And what are the elements that are that are necessary in that design and process design? Um, the last one that I think I'll mention is just the delegations of, of women and victims who went to Havana. There were um, a series of five delegations who traveled to provide proposals. Um, and so I think this was a, a really interesting mechanism as well, because, again, it opened the space more um, for civil society voices, women's voices, victims' voices to be a part of the discussion. And, and so it really... Um, kind of made the government and the FARC confront a lot of the issues uh, historically that they've um, perpetuated. And so um, those delegations, I think, also were important because maybe they were not full negotiators as they would like to be, but there is still space, you know, around the table, behind the table, on the sides of the table to be able to participate meaningfully um, in a peace process. And so, Angelica, I wanted to ask you kind of your analysis of those, um, and, and as I mentioned at the top, the timing of them, whether there's a question of um, peace process design and making it intentional from the onset because inclusion is a value you promote, or the expediency dilemma where you more certainly want to um, include uh, or not include voices because of, of time. So what is your kind of take on, on those elements that I mentioned and, and the timing of those? Thanks, Tony. So this is a, a big question and a, and a huge discussion that we, that is ongoing, in fact, in Colombia. Uh, and and I'd, I'd, I'll start with the first question that you raise. I mean, we know that uh, peace processes that are more inclusive tend to be more stable. Why? Because people feel involved, because there is a sense of local ownership uh, in, terms of, in, in regards to the agreement, because people feel it's their personal responsibility uh, to make sure that an agreement gets implemented and that the, that the transformations required for, uh, for, for peace to take hold are in place. So, so we have evidence about that. At the same time, of course, we also need to ask ourselves whether a peace process is about halting violence versus producing social transformation. And there, uh, the dilemma that you mentioned is, 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 is very important, considering, especially considering the existence of other institutions that have, that, that have the ability and power to, uh, to, to transform main barriers within society uh, uh, in, in absence of or around or, or, or above a peace process. And, and the example uh, that may come to mind right away is the fact that Colombia uh, just approved abortion, free abortion for all up until the 24th week. And this was not a peace process. This was the work of a very committed group of women leaders uh, called Causa Justa, who were able to convince the Constitutional Court of, of amending uh, uh, the kind of rules that we had regarding this process. And this, this, of course, was a hugely difficult discussion, but it happened using the institutional, the available institutional tools, as I said, over and beyond a peace process. So, so there is the discussion of what a peace process is for, and 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 therefore how much other 
agendas, for example, gender or ethnic uh, agendas or environmental agendas should be part of the peace process. I don't, I of course don't have the answer. Uh, uh, I think it's a matter of context and it has to do with the urgency of providing humanitarian relief to specific communities, regardless of gender. Uh, that was certainly my experience uh, during the, the few months that I was part of the government delegation, where we received many calls from very uh, uh, affected, very, very anxious communities in specific regions of Colombia, really requiring us to negotiate whatever possible way there was to halt violence for everybody, men and women alike. So so I, I know that this is an actual dilemma because at the same time, you of course want to make sure that an agreement is gender sensitive, that it takes into account the differential realities of different groups within society and that it therefore can be, as I said at the beginning, as inclusive as possible because this will mean as sustainable as possible. So first of all, I would just like to acknowledge the fact that there is a dilemma um, and that there is a discussion. And, and maybe this is also re related to one of the problems that the peace agreement in Colombia had to face, which is regarding the so-called um, uh, gender ideology that permeated the first draft that was in fact voted down in a referendum in October 2016, not only because of this perceived gender bias, but also for other reasons. But the fact is uh, that some groups that were opposed to the agreement said that by putting so much emphasis on gender, uh, the agreement was throwing away fundamental family structures of society, and many conservative sectors felt um, attacked, basically, and, this, and, 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 and therefore were mobilized against the agreement. Uh, and this had an impact, as I said, on the vote itself. Uh, but also uh, it unleashed a very important debate within the women's movement after the victory of the no, where some asked, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this, this agreement was not the place where some of these gender demands should have been discussed or should have been addressed because there are other institutions for that. Again, I don't, I'm not saying that this is, this is, this, this was wrong, but I, I just like to mention that there was a discussion again about when and how to include different um, issues in the, in the, in, in the agreement and specifically in the case of Colombia. I feel that the women's movement um, uh, was attacked in the in the aftermath of the referendum, in part because people felt that uh, having having produced some 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 sort of overload of the peace agenda uh, partially caused the victory of the no. You could also say, you know, the victory was so small, and the fact that it rained that day in the Caribbean, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it would have lost anyway. But the fact that there was a very strong argument among conservative groups saying that gender ideology caused them to vote no, uh, maybe part should be part of our discussion. Um, so. So on the one hand, yes, the Colombian case is illustrated as an example of inclusion of gender perspectives. On the other hand, we have this particular outcome, which has led to a diminishment, diminishing concern for gender issues in peace implementation. I think many of the initiatives that were launched during the Havana talks have really suffered in the aftermath. Um, and, 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 and this should be, I guess, a concern in, in any upcoming process with the LN if, if there is one. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can, um, as you say, look at the FARC as an important reference point in terms of those inclusion modalities and, and the timing of those and how you can set them up um, 
the beginning of, of a peace process so that inclusion is intentional and it's there from the very beginning. Um, and so I think this is also part of a broader conversation that at least in the United States we're having is about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and peace building. And so, yes, we can say um, women's inclusion or the ethnic chapter were part of that process. But again, how do we really think of those issues and, and deepen the conversation about the timing of those mechanisms so that that there is um, long-term sustainability and, and, you know, to avoid or mitigate what we were talking about, you were just mentioning the gender ideology um, discussion and how that really undermined um, uh, the advancement of, of the peace process and women's inclusion. Um, and so I, I want to see if um, you have any thoughts on where the ELN process could go and how women can be a, a meaningful partner in that? I mean, there's always a discussion about civil society playing an active role in the process, but it's always been a bit um, conceptual. Um, and so I just wanted to get your take on what that meant um, or what your vision might be. So uh, unfortunately, uh, in this past government, very little progress was made with the ELN. If any progress at all. It doesn't mean there has not been any communication because there in fact has been communication, but uh, they were apparently not able to turn to, to resume any form of um, formal negotiations between the government and the ELN. And I think this has to do in part with uh, the, the demands by the very uh, own government party, which, which adopted a very strong stance saying, you know, they would not sit down unless ELN renounced to kidnappings, which ELN still considers uh, something that, that they would be happy to negotiate about, but not something that they would accept as a precondition for talks. And since the government didn't shift in that specific uh, position, well, there were, there were no talks. Um, and not only that, there was also no debriefing. There was also very little knowledge uh, building on what the ELN is, what they want, uh, where they want to go to. So I think, I think, unfortunately, uh, this, 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 this government uh, actually pretty much wasted an opportunity to to really produce what we call complete peace and uh, and move us, move specific regions that have been under uh, control of the ELN towards something that is. Uh, more marked by peaceful coexistence. So I think, unfortunately, this has been a wasted opportunity. Should a new government arise and, and want to be, uh, and, and, and I'm sorry, should a new government want to it be interested in, in resuming conversations, I think civil society will in fact play a crucial role, as I mentioned earlier, and as opposed to FARC, ELN is, a, is an organization that is very much uh, enmeshed or, or, or empowered even by civil society organizations. It, 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 it sees itself as a representative of society. So they will certainly look for channels to produce and design civil society participation in the achievement of an agreement with a gender focus, but pretty much with every other focus as well. ELN is, is a very maximalist group. They would like to have every possible sector, every possible subject within society uh, on the radar within as part of the negotiation agenda. And that in itself would be a huge obstacle to address. Uh, but I cannot imagine an, a process with the ELN that, that does not have a very strong civil society component, uh, which will, of course, also be a huge challenge uh, because many in civil society feel that participation does not necessarily leave 
lead to concrete solutions to their problems, uh, despite the fact that there are many mechanisms for participation in place, at least since 1991, when we had a new constitution, uh, and, 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 and the, many of these mechanisms are not really put in place or are not perceived by the population to be effective, then any new design for civil society participation in an ELN process may prove problematic to actually nurture and to actually use to produce meaningful solutions to uh, or meaningful designs or, or contents of a peace agreement with ELN. But uh, as opposed to the FARC process, an ELN process, I think, would have to be much more participatory, much more um, uh, respectful of civil society opinion. Uh, and 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 inputs uh, to be successful. Certainly, it's it's very complex as you've outlined, Angelica. So I I, I am curious to see how that process can advance in in the months and years to come. Um, we do have one question from the audience um, that I think we can both tackle, um, which is how can women create a force and demand for peace uh, in Colombia, and what about the broader region? Um, and I might draw on some some lessons in Venezuela as well. So I feel that women have proven for decades uh, that they are not only uh, interested in feminist issues and in gender issues, but that they're also many times uh, a pacifist group. Uh, 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 force that should that should be that should be respected and 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 uh, and uh, and used in 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 a positive way of the word. I'm sorry, I, I can't find, but just sort of put in place in order to really convey to the fighting actors that uh, Colombian society is just absolutely fed up with violence, and that is that there is no uh, not not a, not 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 a not a not the right justification to be pursuing in a war in this year, 2022, especially when we see what war causes, uh, not only in Colombia, but elsewhere in, in, in on the globe right now. So I think women have a very clear moral authority. They have also shown organizational capacity. They are also, uh, they have also displayed significant negotiate, negotiating skills. Uh, I would say, for instance, that the, 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 the beginning of a subcommission on gender during the FARC process, um, that really led by example in terms of how to uh, engage with others who think differently. So in many ways, I think uh, women have shown that they have both the skills, the capacity and the will to contribute to peace in Colombia. Um, and this is something that, uh, thanks to the question, um, we should definitely underscore as a, as a potential for ongoing peace consolidation in the country. Absolutely. I think we've seen their, their interest, their, their demand, they're an important constituency to continue to, to participate in these decision-making spaces at all levels, from the grassroots at the peace-building level, at the local level, all the way to the national. Um, I think I might talk a little bit about um, what we've also been seeing in, in neighboring Venezuela, kind of from a USIP perspective, um, that the, the uh, mobilization of women in the Venezuelan context um, can be and should be likely a force um, for negotiating space between um, the Maduro government and the opposition. And so there has been, um, and USIP has um, uh, 
has a commitment to to these exchanges between Colombian women and Venezuelan women, obviously recognizing the the massive differences and the moments in conflict in which they they live. But what are the lessons that Colombian women can provide to Venezuelan women as they're really kind of starting to understand um, the uh, more peace building approach, negotiation, mediation and dialogue as both soft and hard skills to be able to advance and their participation in a Venezuelan negotiation or dialogue. Um, and then we also see, you know, from USIP as well, we've also um, a few years ago in- engaged with Afghanistan women and how the Colombian experience with the FARC could inform and support and really provide solidarity to women negotiators of what was the intra-Afghan dialogue process. And so I think those exchanges um, cross cultures, while we recognize that the context and the root drivers of conflict are are vastly different, um, that there is still some ways to learn from and adapt and and adjust these these lessons that have coming that are coming out of Colombia. Columbia, even in vastly different contexts. Um, and so I think those are important also, those exchanges to, to hear lessons learned and, and really mobilize and elevate the participation of women in a lot of spaces. Um, so I don't know, Stephen, if there are any more questions from the audience or if we're at time here. Yeah, I think we need to wrap up because I know Angelica has another commitment. Um, unless you had any final thoughts that you want to make right now. Not really, only um, beyond the, the discussion of, of inclusion versus expediency, which, I, which I'm not sure if, if it's a dilemma or if it just, it just should happen at the same time, we need to find the right combination. I think we need to make sure that women are part of these processes, uh, that also that in Colombia, uh, we do not continue doing what seems to be happening, which is that post-conflict matters seem to be an increasingly male uh, conversation. If you look at the main leaders of the, of the agencies and institutions of these, of, on these tasks, I think women are, women are missing there. So uh, I think just, just, just the very mechanical decision to make sure that women are at the table and are involved in these discussions from any perspective and not, not assuming that a gender perspective is shared by all women equally. Um, I think that it, that in itself will make a huge difference. And that would be my, my, my recommendations to uh, my recommendation to women anywhere in the world, really to make sure that our voices heard, that we open up space and, and for, and, and, and to men just, you know, make sure that we are treated as equal in these processes. Yeah, and I'll just echo that final. Uh, we talked a lot about the peace process design and women at the table, but there's a lot to be said about the post-accord scenario and the decision-making spaces and the leadership of women to be able to implement and carry the spirit of what was agreed to in that in that negotiation. So the implementation phase and those leaderships at ministry levels or local levels is equally as important and should endure well past the moment an agreement is signed. Um, so I think that would be my, my final message for, for this morning's discussion. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.